This episode of Gen C is sponsored by Chainalysis. Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer and collectibles, both digital and physical with on-chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid, digital, and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, great to see you again. I know we're a little pressed for time, so we're going to get to this really quickly in terms of the stories that I think are interesting. Only want to talk about two things. One is Anthropic is being sued by Universal Music Group and a couple of other music labels. Why? Because if you say, write me a song that features the death of Buddy Holly, it automatically spits out the lyrics of American Pie. That might have been written by someone before. Right, exactly. And so Universal Music is saying, hey, look, lyrics are all around the internet. But like Genius pays us a licensing fee. So if you're going to do these things, we have to make a deal. So it's yet another example of people who own IP are coming after the AI companies and the music world knows how to get their money for uh, digital rights. Like they're very good at that. So what are your thoughts on this? You know, we've been talking about this for a few months now because these stories, they happen every single week. It's like there's constantly these IP owners who are debating, challenging, going to court with these sort of large language models and their owners. So I love Anthropic. Personal note, like everybody go check out Claude. It's the model that I personally like working with the most for sort of personal and non-work stuff. I think this is another example of IP owners finding direct proof that what they own is being used by these AI companies and without the proper credit and without the proper licensing. So it'll be interesting to see how all this comes to a boiling point. I guess that's my prediction is there's so many of these examples at a certain point, people are, there will need to be some changes made. Absolutely. All right, Avery, the next hot take I want from you is I moderated a panel at Advertising Week this week. I had the executive producer of Hamilton on. Maggie was telling me that a lot of people come to the musical, they buy the merch because it's limited edition when you go see it versus what you can get online. She then said they're now making limited edition merch for Roblox for their experience there. And then I read, and we'll, again, we'll put this in the show notes, Macy's is launching a giant digital shopping experience. I know Macy's is a partner of your guys as well. It keeps making me think if immersive worlds are the next e-com layer we should be paying attention to. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. My hot take on digital fashion is that it's not coming in the far future. It is here. And I think digital fashion for retailers, for brands, for anyone who has IP makes so much sense. And I feel like virtual items, which is what they're called in Roblox, they're so easy and accessible. And we know that double-digit percentages of Roblox users change their avatars' clothes every day. So I think it's such a fun turnkey way to engage authentically, also without breaking the bank. So I am all for virtual items. I think it's not just about virtual. I'm also looking at those being storefronts for physical items. And that I think I'm really excited about. So we're going to get to our guest. Our guest today is Tom McLeod. Tom is someone that Avery and I know really well. We have spent a lot of time with him over the last couple of years. He is an operator, an entrepreneur, a founder. He's someone who just really gets online systems, understands Web3, 
with a nuance that most people don't get. He is the co-founder of a property called Archive. And Archive is a decentralized physical museum. They acquire physical art pieces. They then lend them out to institutions and entities all around the world and show them. And so the idea really is, ideally, all of their acquisitions are always on display somewhere, just not in one place like the Louvre. So really excited to talk to Tom and hear what they're building and what he gets excited about in building in the Web3 ecosystem. So after the break, we will come back with Tom. Chainalysis is the premier blockchain data platform. Crypto businesses, financial institutions, and government agencies utilize Chainalysis data and services to answer their biggest questions about the blockchain. As regulators and policymakers work together to pass legislation that provides clarity for crypto businesses and protects consumers, they have the chance to do so with unparalleled data and research into the crypto ecosystem. Demystify cryptocurrency and gain greater visibility and insight by visiting Chainalysis.com slash Gen C. All right, welcome back, everybody. We are here with Tom McLeod. Tom is the co-founder of Archive, an amazing decentralized museum project that we're going to talk about. Tom also, I think, was introduced probably to Avery and I at the same time in one of our group chats, I'm going to say a year, year and a half, two years ago, and just came in so hot with all the amazing takes. <laughs> uh, we love Tom and his brain and just how much intelligence and insight he brings to the space. So really excited to have you here. Tom, first off, welcome. And tell us like a little bit about yourself and what got you to this moment. Sure. I started in music, so my degree was actually audio engineering with a computer science minor. Started a little tiny record label in DC with a music studio. Thought I was going to do that forever. I think my plan was like DC Diddy was kind of my my general <laughs> thought process of what my life could look like. So you're from DC? No, I'm from Jersey originally, actually. <laughs> yeah. He saw an opening for a DC Diddy, though. I saw a DC Diddy moment. I felt like there was a gap. Who went to Howard? So DC is the DC Diddy, if we're being honest. But that went just horrible. I mean, great times, good stuff, loved doing it. 08 was kind of the worst time to start an 80s, 90s style independent record label and a music studio when everyone suddenly had MacBook Pros, etc. Ended up doing websites for all those folks. So I became like the guy who did MySpace pages and websites for music artists, which led to doing websites for small businesses, which led to creating a uh, just like a content management system for freelance web designers that kind of moved me into tech. That grew pretty well, didn't know anything about business at the time, just me and a co-founder in the back of another startup that was really well-funded. And uh, we built a pretty good cash flow business, like 30,000 users paying us a monthly subscription, I was like 26 years old. iPhone rolled out and my ADHD kicked in. And instead of like raising money and trying to compete against Squarespace, which we were way bigger than for that tiny period of time, we just moved to San Francisco and started doing iPhone apps. So launched about 17 iPhone apps in three years from 2011 to roughly 2014, 11 of which failed just absolutely miserably. Four did big enough to be annoying, like we had to support them. And then two did in the tens of millions of users range. So we had a very large photography app that for a while was the number two photography app behind Instagram in around 2012, 2013. And then we built the largest companion app to a game called League of Legends, which in 2014 was the biggest game in the world. I sold that to Tencent which is a big giant company. No one wanted to work there, at least neither me nor my co-founder. Kind of got out the game and started a company called Omni, which did on-demand physical storage, raised a lot of money and exited that to Coinbase in 2019. That sounds like a very exciting path. 
Tom, I feel like there should be like a TV show around just like you, your life and your ventures, because it sounds like you've done a bunch (laughs) of different things. What's kind of been that common thread if you had to like look back and say, you know, whether it was your iPhone apps or it was the stuff that you're doing in your decentralized museum or it's websites, what's that common thread? It seems like emerging tech is a big one. It's definitely emerging tech. I think a lot of times I'm too early. Omni did okay, net of everything, but I think that product will be a mega hit in five years when they're self-driving cars. This is a slight aside. One of the first apps we tried to build, for instance, was the accelerometer showed up on the iPhone and you could measure the speed that a phone was moving through the air. So we created an app called I Failed. And the idea was it would see how high you could toss your phone and build a giant leaderboard for who could toss their phone the highest. Apple had no idea what to do with this. They were like, you're trying to break phones. We're like, no, we're trying to create a cool game that people could compete to be the highest leader in their market. They fully just put us in limbo. This is like 2011, I want to say. Just review hell, et cetera. Eight months later, they had gotten more clear on what they wanted to do. Someone else comes out with a game called iToss, exact same product. It debuts on Ellen. Ellen's on the show throwing the phone. They sell millions of copies. We are still in review limbo. And so that's been a somewhat of a history of a lot of the things I like to do. It's like, there's something crazy. There's something new. I'm super curious about it. Let's just jump in full feet and try to push it to the max with what you can do with those systems, which sometimes has been, you can do a lot, but they might not let you (laughs) regardless of what the systems are. So I think that's it. And I just like to learn. So, you know, I think that also ties into everything. So if I can learn a new space, I find the best way is to learn by doing. And sometimes that's building a business practitioner at heart. Well, how did you get inspired to build Archive? And can you tell us a little bit about what Archive is, what it does, and where it's heading? Sure. Yeah. So Archive Inspiration, I guess the through line from all of those different businesses at some degree was I started working with creators. I was never a musician. I was never on the blew a trumpet, strummed a guitar. I always liked being at 3am trying to make a snare sound great. I liked working with creatives to make them sound better. That was when I was, and probably still am at some degree, I was probably the happiest, even if that was not necessarily the best way to support a family, pay rent, buy a car, right? It was very hard to make money in that industry. But I always wanted to get back to there. So I had this drumbeat in my head that if I could ever get back to working with creators at some level, after spending a long time in tech, I would try to figure out a project that got me there. And so I think of artists broadly as scaled creativity, right? And is there something I can do to help them? So that was a thesis I was running through in my head. The through line of the other companies was sort of this idea of like digital, physical spaces. What does it look like to have a mobile app in your hand? What does that mean? What was the change in that guard? And then with Omni, it was literally physical to digital products. So the company that we did Omni was on-demand physical storage. You hit a button on your phone, someone would come and take away your golf clubs, put them in a storage unit somewhere. We would bring them back when you want to go golfing or we would send them ahead of time. But we photographed every single item. So we had millions of items being photographed and you had a little personal collection. And the combination of all those things played out in the pandemic because I was watching the rise of sort of NFT-based marketplaces. I was watching people start to buy, sell, trade in digital art on that level. And I was playing in the space because I had spent some time in crypto broadly, but I wasn't terribly like obsessed with the art being created. But the actions and the systems I was seeing being developed, my loose understanding of what the contemporary art market looked like, I was like, these guys are speed running 60 years of the contemporary art market. A personal wallet is a private collector. Only everyone can see it being acquired. OpenSea is Christie's, Sotheby's. 
A DAO forming is a museum for all intents and purposes. They're saying we as a group of individuals have decided that this thing is important for a reason, which then affects market forces. And that is just the same way that I understood art and collectibles to work from what I could get there. One of the things we had at Omni was early on, we started to get super valuable items, which boggled my mind, kind of. Like a guy would show up at your house in a red vest and a red van, and it makes sense to give him a dirt bike. It didn't make sense to give him, you know, 14 Birkin bags or Spider-Man number 12 sealed in a graded case or the first Macintosh computer. And these are the things that we started seeing. And one day we got a Rembrandt etching. And I was like, wow, why are people doing this? And one, they liked the digital. They liked suddenly having it. They didn't need it in their homes. But we had to build these special rooms for it. And I thought of those rooms like little museums that were curated by our users and by our customers. And that kind of brought me around to this idea, well, what if we could have invested in that group? What if people could come together to curate that? And I also just simply never wanted to run warehouses again. And a museum is basically the hardest warehouse in the world to run. It's a warehouse that stores the most valuable things that you have to let people come in and see that also has to maintain air conditioning, quality control, all these different pieces. What if we could take that, blow it up, distribute the pieces out so more people could experience it and also create some degree of an investable vehicle so that you're part of the journey of the pieces, not mm -hmm. just on the, um, the experiential side of it. And that was the thesis that we came at and that's evolved a lot in the interim, but that's basically the idea of Archive. Could you build a museum with your friends? It's been the pitch. So a lot of stuff to unpack there. Sure. First off, Tom, I got in the music industry because I looked at the back of a Public Enemy record and I saw where they recorded. And I went down there and I just said, can I intern here? But I feel your pain in terms of like spending three hours EQing a hi-hat totally. to get it to sound exactly correct. Then those were some of the most fun days. Blast. I had so much fun. I also think that I mean, so many things that you said resonate, right? The idea that people, one, the idea of just perceptual value, right? To your point, it's like the person with an original Apple computer in a box or the person with a 1992 set of pair of Jordans or the person with a Barclay Hendrix piece all are seeing that they have value that's very personal to them and they want to make sure it's being stored correctly. And most of those things never see the light of day. Yeah. Right. I was reading, I think it's from the, what is it, the $12 million shark book that, you know, is 80 plus percent of all museum art is never on display and it just rotates in, right? And that was a 2008 book. Right, exactly. So it's probably even more now. It's way more now. Right. So I think that, you know, from my read of what you guys do is you're sort of saying, let us acquire interesting cultural pieces and then really with the idea of having them be seen, lending them out. But then also you have this digital gallery that's always open. Is that kind of the way you guys think about it? Yeah. So, I mean, we look at it as the stance here is museums are great. I think museums serve an incredibly important purpose and have historically done that. They have also had, there's lots of commentary on the negatives in some cases, right? The British Museum basically shows a bunch of stuff that is representative of conquest. Where does a museum fit in the overall global art market from a are they a scarcity lever on the art market? How does that function in terms of why people donate? Are they just a large tax write-off for wealthy people to move their capital through? There's lots of these other statements. And broadly, I think the most common refrain is that they're better at acquiring than displaying, which I think if you talk to most people and you say, what does a museum do? You'd say it shows a lot of great art and collectibles. It shows a lot of valuable pieces. 
In reality, if you look at, let's say, the Met, I think they're under 3% of their collection on display. The vast majority is in Secaucus, New Jersey. I think LACMA is under 2%. 3% of the Met's collection is on display. I just want to double tap on that because I think like under 1% of the population is aware of that fact. Oh, it's unbelievable. This is going to be almost every major publicly or privately donated grant-funded museum largely is under 10%. I would be shocked if you could find me one that had over a 1,000 pieces, right? Anything that's like a major city-based metropolitan area public museum, it's wild. And it takes a very long time. They're not cycling through them. It's not like it's 3% on display, and then every year they remove that 3%, and the other 3% goes on. The permanent collection that has the pieces that brings people in the door is always going to stay. They're never going to take the Mona Lisa down. The things that are supposed to be there always have permanent space. So a lot of the stuff there doesn't get shown. And there's a reason for some of it, right? So conservation is huge. And I think the number one thing that you can talk about archive is how do you think about conservation? Because we're largely thinking about forward-facing, placing, like putting stuff out in the world, where there is certainly a huge part of museums is just, hey, even if it's not on display, we've kept it safe. And I think that is a very valid point. But I do think when you look at what people expect from a museum, they expect a few things. They expect to be able to see stuff. They expect to be able to learn about stuff and they expect the stuff that they learn about to be placed into context, right? Why am I learning about this? What makes this important? Anyone can learn about a piece of art. Why is this piece of art that I'm learning about important? Put it in context and tell me why and then connect the dots into how this flows through to everything else. So where we look at what we can do is we can mimic a lot of those same pieces, right? So we can put you on conversations with the art and the artists. We can put it in context. We handle the academic side. We put out stories, why this is important, why it was acquired, what it means to our community, what it means to the community writ large and why it happens that way. And we also would like to put it on display. So the difference is when we look at the business side of it, because we think of this as basically a new form of patronage. When you look at the next generation of folks, they're not necessarily going to want to go to quarterly galas to be hit up to donate $50,000 checks. They'd probably like to see their $50,000 checks be put into something that potentially creates economic return while also supporting the art and the artist and putting it out on display. I just think there's a sort of a shift in the experiential side of those things and the individuals that want to participate. And so when we look at it, if we can do two of the three, no problem. The third, we can probably offset that being conservation by making sure we don't bring in pieces that we can't handle or conserve through the actual side of the business. We're accumulating only what we can show. And when we acquire what we can show, we can place. The other difference is we won't force you to go to a specific location that always has everything. And so historically, a museum is a show of some degree of soft power, right? So it shows that a city can put this on display, it can fund it, it has enough means from its population, its coffers, whatever, to have a tier one art museum of some degree shows that this is a thriving place to be. You know, that's always going to be the case. We look at it as can we place things where they matter the most? So if an artist created a work in Guadalajara and they would love to see it on display in a location in Guadalajara that meant something to them when they created it, but probably couldn't afford it now, we can. (laughs) We'll put it on display in a local library in Guadalajara. We'll put it on a local display in a library in Oslo. We'll put it on local display at a great hotel. (laughs) We'll work with a lot of other places as long as individuals can walk into a facility and see an item and see something, that's what we look to do. And from a business case, it also lowers our operational overhead because we're passing on that cost to those places, but they already have the space, the facility they're running it anyway, versus us having to maintain some base level of you know, grant-based patronage to keep up the system. So 
that was a bit of a rant, but that's kind of how I see everything playing together and how we all work together in the space. I think that's fascinating. And I've read that museum attendance hasn't really bounced back since COVID. It's down about 50% for a lot of museums. So I think a lot of museums are looking to connect with this next generation of consumers, next generation of collectors, next generation of donors. And I think archive is a really credible way to do so. And Tom, I know you've brought archive into some of the most iconic art fairs in the world, whether it's Freeze or Basel or other places. Can you talk a little bit about your strategy around helping the world discover archive? I think the issue with the art world vis-a-vis the tech world, so obviously I came from music originally, but I'm certainly, I think I'd be loosely associated with the, a tech bro broadly in terms of like a, an easy way to consolidate my personage at this point. Most people that come into the art world see a large market, they see a large TAM. So they say art and collectibles combined, let's call it a $1.7 trillion asset class. That's if you took every sneaker, all the art, every vintage car, it's seller. And you're like, all right, that's pretty big, right? That's a pretty big market. When you look at that right out of the gate, that is roughly the value of Apple or Microsoft. <laughs> if you captured 100%, you could build one major tech company. So you'll never reach the actual scale that you think tech venture investments are. And then when you look at transaction volume, if you take just art, not counting NFTs, just sort of, let's say, broad-based contemporary art market, it's about $80 billion in trade a year. $80 billion in trade a year is less than a quarter of Amazon revenue. <laughs> so it's not that. So if you said, if I can capture 10% of that, 4% of it, and then you're kicking a piece off of the financial transaction, which has institutional players that have been holding onto it for a very long time, I think most folks jump in like, we're just going to take the market. And the market doesn't want you to take it. <laughs> The art world is set up specifically to not let you do that. It's supposed to be somewhat slow. It's supposed to be somewhat opaque. It's supposed to be somewhat gatekeepy. And I think what we looked at was, can you enter the space in an authentic manner where if we do what we think we're doing, we think we can be a large scale player. So can we basically become what would be an ultra high net worth individual in the space or an institutional investor in art? And that becomes an attractive business. It's a billion, $2 billion business of size. And not sit here and say, we're going to change everything in the art world. Can we work within a lot of those places, but potentially expand the base? And so I think that is the big thesis difference for what we're looking at, is that we believe there's going to be a large shift over the next 10 years about the individuals who are going to be able to play in that space and who want to be there. So there will be a natural line of succession of the folks that have been controlling the art world for a while, let's say they're roughly in their 70s to 80s right now. That's going to come down to a group of people that are broadly somewhere between Gen Z and elder millennial. That also group is going to see that across everything. They're going to come into their own capital. They're going to come into their own jobs. They're going to start wanting to buy and spend in this space. And currently, the systems that are set up are not really attractive to them. They don't want to be gatekept. They want to know why things are there. They don't want to be forced sold into things. They want to buy stuff they love and they want narrative and experience and story. So what we sat down and said was, could we give you that? Could your investment side, could your participation, could your effort and energy also give you experiences? And so we looked at it as, can we do dinners? Can we do events? When we place art at the music festival, can we get our members VIP tickets? When we place art at F1 in a paddock club, can we get folks that are local at that time the ability to go check out a car? Can we work with Sail GP and get you on a chase boat? We look at this idea that the people that want to invest and participate with Archive are looking at it from a different side. They want to support the art, they want to know the story, and they also want cool, unique experiences tied to it because that's the social currency that they run on, not just 10% year-over-year returns or 15% year-over-returns. 
They look at things a little more holistically. And I also think they're consolidating. So they put art in the same place that they put watches and they put sports cards and they put trading cards and memorabilia and they put music merch. They think of this as broad-based cultural luxury. And I think that's a big shift in the segmentation of how people used to be like, well, there's art and there's collectibles and there's real estate and there's all these things. And I think largely the new generation of capitalists coming in are going to look at this all as a spinoff of like a mega LVMH, basically, that also encompasses art and collectibles and other things in that nature. And we're trying to stay in that spot. So everything we've done has been to try to create that energy around an existing group of people by meeting them where they are, but bringing new folks into the conversation. And when we talk about tying back to the original thesis, I think the only way to grow that 80 billion is by expanding the base. So if you want to grow the art market, they're going to actually have to increase the amount of players in it and expand the TAM so that you look at it as a much more holistic, larger amount of trade. That's kind of where we're focused on. And I think it's going to take a long time, to be honest, but that is where we're focused. I want to talk about collective ownership in a second, but I also think what you're saying gets to some sort of behavior about the collector, if you will. Like I think about the person who invested $10,000 in our local restaurant so that they can say I'm a restaurateur and they can walk in and get treated like an owner. A lot of time that's like a flex. And I know many people who have done this are, you know, very small partners in restaurants and bars and things like that. There's a cultural cachet about saying, oh yeah, that's my place. And I think you have the Steve Cohens of the world and the Broads and the Lauders who have in essence done that on a mega scale of saying, I'm going to align with core institutions, whether it's the Tate, whether it's the Momo or the Met. And this is where my collection is going to go. But it also means I get to put my name on a building or I get to say that's mine. And I've collected work for 20 years and I've lent it out here and there. And there's, there's something very special about going to see the thing that you own in context of all the other stuff. And it does feel like what you guys are trying to do is democratize that feeling a little bit to say we are part of a cultural movement. And I love that you use the word patronage. And I say that because I think in the crypto art space, it's still so much about ownership to flip and speculate. Whereas I think the way you talked about it when we spoke to Leslie Silverman, she also comes out of the art world, said this exact same thing. Like you have to be prepared to donate, not to create more wealth from this, which doesn't mean it won't happen. It's just something that I think is important. I also think that a lot of people probably first thought of art ownership collectively in something like a masterworks, mm -hmm. right? Or something like that, which I think you guys are vastly different from. So if you can kind of like talk about what collective ownership means for archive, I mean, you've talked about how you get the community involved, but how do they also are part of the decision-making process and all the ways that you guys utilize community as part of the messaging? The short answer is I think that's iterated. To be honest, you know, when we came out, I think we came out full on like Web3. You know, we wanted to do the, you drop your money in a juice box. We go to town, we vote on exactly where it gets split up. Everything is done that way. That was pretty clear right out of the gate that that wasn't going to float, at least if I wanted to maintain my US citizenship and sort of go that direction. Like we had some clear hurdles there. We then expanded it to the community votes on a pile of capital and how that gets acquired in. And we found that that worked really well. So there was folks who liked, they didn't mind their money being exposed to a community vote. The community was fine not to have economic interests in it, as long as they got to have great stuff come from it. So they loved that they got on a Zoom call with Michelle Lamy from Rick Owens. They loved hopping on calls with Galaporis Kim, an amazing artist that we acquired. Like Getting to have these conversations and do that was more than worth the zero price for admission, which was largely just voting and participation. 
What happened there became the same iteration issue, which was directly putting people's votes towards acquisition largely became a bit too focused on the money side in a way that wasn't directly aligned with what the money wanted. Now the money was the issue because the money was sitting here saying, well, broadly, we would expect some degree of returns if we're only financial and this is only community. How do you square that circle? So what we end up having to do is basically spin off the money side into a like a fully accredited, qualified investor vehicle with like an offshore Cayman Islands fund. It's fully SEC regulated. And people from the community as well as individuals on the sort of GP structure vote on acquisitions. And then we present all of that now to the community with the artists. Every time something gets acquired, they get to experience it in a different funnel, but they still get the perks of being a part of it and seeing it. And they now get the ability when stuff's out in public to get the perks from being in the community when it gets placed. So it still gives them upgrades, opportunities, and all these access on that side. I think what we'll end up doing is when we start discussing with artists and people that are purely passionate, the conversations start to come back to one single thread, which is, well, how do I support you? Do I buy your art? Like, what is the next step? I want to continue to do it. And the, the answer kind of becomes, there was a thread years ago on VC. It's like, how do you support sort of minority and POC founders? And it was just like, write the check, right? Like, write the check became a kind of a, a conversation around that. And I think we'll end up probably taking some degree of any success of the fund and pushing it into direct grants for the actual creation of the art with no expectation of ownership back for artists we support and artists we acquire on the other side and using that to be what the community pushes. So there's no economic return. So it's clearly not a securitized system, but they actually get to support, see what happens, maybe get invited to an opening of a gallery show or something that occurs that way. So our goal is to get back into that. In terms of raw collective ownership, I think the issue has historically been, and this is a chop new segment, I think when we think about raw collective ownership, when you look at Masterworks, when you look at Rally, when you look at Otis, when you look at all these people that have come into that space, the market caps, and this is like raw economic stuff, little market caps aren't exciting. So you'll see this in crypto tokens. They're exciting for raw speculation only if there's a lot of people moving. So if you have under a $4 million market cap on a token and someone can literally spend 50 grand and move it by 10%, that's exciting for the moment when you're seeing all this arbitrage because arbitrage is what makes markets exciting. Let's say on a Kahindi Wiley piece for 1.2 million bucks somewhere that you now have 50,000 doctors and dentists in the Midwest splitting shares of, it's not movement. There's no excitement in a market you don't get to experience it either. You're not talking to the artist. You don't see it out in public. And it's just kind of an asset that you're sitting on waiting for something to happen with. It kind of like removes the soul from the whole thing because you've missed all of the art. You've missed all the experience. You've missed all the context. And you're just holding shares of something that is no different than, at least with the restaurant with your 10 grand, you get to be the man or the woman when you go to the restaurant. With this, you get nothing. So I think over time, that becomes less exciting. What we thought was exciting is, it sounds hilarious, because in traditional stock investing, if I told you like index funds are exciting, everyone's like index funds are boring, right? But historically, index funds have been great. We actually think index funds are exciting here. It's put your capital across a lot of things, because then you get to see a lot of stuff move. You get to learn about a lot of things. You get to have a lot of experiences. So we've moved largely into this idea that archive itself, the collection is what you invest in and become a part of. And while some items might become extremely overwhelmingly successful monetarily, and some might not, you will have had some experience and value the entire way because you get exposed to a lot of stuff. 
And we're specifically targeting people that probably don't have giant art collections left yet. This is their first way in. They want to start figuring out how to get involved in art in these different places. So start here. We'll find an artist you love that you got to meet on a call or you got to go to a private dinner with when we were in your town and then start collecting directly. That's fine. Just use us as your basically your edge before you would go and get a broker or go and get a you know someone in front of there, an advisor. And so that's how we've been thinking about the difference between those things. Collective ownership is very hard to do on a per item basis when experiencing the item is a key piece. At least that's my experience. And Tom, you mentioned that you sold your previous company to Coinbase. You have been an avid proponent of the Web3 ecosystem. And you also mentioned that you quickly realized that your original thesis needed to evolve in the context of archive. What's your sort of take over the last two years in the Web3 ecosystem? Hot take central. (laughs) Um, The tech got buried in the tokens, kind of. And that was fine 11 years ago when I got my first Bitcoin or whatever, and it was fine. Casual flex. I sold that at $400. Like, <laughs> I think my Ethereum entry price was $4.65, about $4.65, somewhere like New Year's 2013 or 2014, I think. I can't remember. I know it was like New Year's Day. And I sold it for 4000 bucks. I had like an insane amount. And I thought I was a genius. And that is the problem, is that Web3 rapidly makes people feel like they're geniuses because they did a thing with very little research, very little data, and very little experience in a very nascent market with huge players moving you, you feeling like your luck was skill, has created a lot of hype and excitement. When most of the people, when you talk to the folks who originally got into it, one of my large investors in Omni and a close friend is a guy, Stefan Thomas, and he was the CTO at Ripple. He's the guy who lost, he's got 7,000 Bitcoin trapped on a thumb drive, lost the password. You've probably seen like Lonely Guy on the New York Times cover. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Close friends. I even worked with him at a company called Coil during the pandemic and some other stuff. Good buddy. He didn't get in crypto to make money. Like he made the YouTube video showing people how to use Bitcoin to move payments across borders because he was running a website company and had offshore clients. They want to say it's Bangladesh. And he would pay the guy 400 bucks. And by the time the 400 bucks made it to him through a payment processor, Western Union, local, whatever, the guy was making 230 bucks. And he's like, the 400 bucks I'm paying to a guy in Bangladesh to do this, losing 46% of the value is crazy. It's so much money, especially when you look at what a dollar goes for what that guy was living in. He was looking for better payment solutions and found Bitcoin. And then these guys didn't actually jump in to become multi-multi-billionaires. They came in because they saw a problem they wanted to solve. The next wave of people came in to be billionaires. And usually when you come into something to become a billionaire, you don't get as good of builders. That's my personal experience in almost every wave. Like when I was in mobile, the people who came in, like, I'm just coming in to make a ton of money. Those apps didn't do it. (laughs) Maybe a few of them. The people who made a ton of money were the people who had really good ideas that use the iPhone and mobile devices uniquely. The people who made a ton of money in web one and web two or people who came up with great ideas, not just like, I'm going to exploit the systems. And so the only difference is crypto was really loud. So a lot of people were able to show that their great ideas made them rich. Let's bring in a lot of people to do that. And I think the last two years have been a pretty good herd thin for a lot of those folks moving to whatever their next thing is. I don't know where that is yet. That's AI, Tom. <laughs> is it AI? That's where it is. <laughs> they moved to AI. <laughs> 
and they're all going to get eaten up by the same five people who eat up everybody. But, you know, they've moved to that side of it. And the people who are still left are generally here because they came in because they thought the technology was something that could do amazing things for whatever the field that they're looking to revolutionize with it. And I think those folks, net of time, will actually have outlier success more than the speculators and scammers who did make some money. I think the people who actually build revolutionary tech will be the Zuckerbergs and the Jobses and the, the Musks that come out of this with you know, generational crazy wealth from doing that. And they should be because they're actually building things that people want versus just making stuff that make them capital. And so I think this has been the most important, let's call it dip in the, I want to say four cycles I've probably seen. And I do think whatever comes out of this will create actual real fundamental tech that matters. And that will be the wave that I'd like to be attached to if possible. And Tom, I think that recaps a lot of why projects like Archive are important, because I do believe, and we've had a bunch of guests on for the last couple of months who I think are much more focused on why the technology and the ecosystem creates better systems for people versus the folks who I think we're seeing now in real time watching their values go down and down and down and down because their communities were only 500 people who all wanted to get rich. And that only lasts for so long. So I do think that folks wanting to play in systems where you can create cultural change, which I think Archive is one of the few projects in the Web3 space that actually wants to talk about culture, which I think is rare for us, frankly. Even today, when we're recording this, is the Hour Force One drop for Nike, right? The idea that I suddenly, because I collected a digital collectible, I now can buy a limited edition shoe. I don't think anyone's going to think that those are going to be sold in the aftermarket for $10,000, but you have something that a lot of people don't have, and that creates cultural status for you and a flex. So I think all of that for me feels like why this stuff is interesting. And I fully agree, we have to change the conversation continually away from degen culture, from speculative culture, if we want this to take off. There's no place in the future for that because that is all financialization of our relationships, which I think is just, it's just too limiting when it really comes down to it. What do people used to say? When I was first getting into sort of crypto broadly, this is before anyone said Web3, it was just like everyone's in crypto or whatever. The big pitch was always, what if the guy or you know the team or the girl who created HTTPS got to see a bit of money every time HTTPS was used? Or what if every time SSL was touched or FTP or HTML or IMTP, like all these internet protocols, what if the protocols had been open sourced in a monetizable way that wasn't just whatever? And I always had this weird double feeling. I was like, well, one... I don't want anyone to own HTTP. The fact that it was given out is like the polio vaccine. It's like we should give this out to the world. But I do understand the idea that you probably have faster development of standards, etc. if there was clear incentives along the way to do it. And so that all made a lot of sense to me. But somewhere in there, it got lost in Pepe tokens and pickles and yams and all these different things where I was like, oh, people told me Ethereum is going to be the new computer and Polygon is going to be pipes. I want to get back to that because I believe if that's accurate, we're going to build game-changing stuff. So let's make that happen. Absolutely. Tom, we could go on forever, obviously, as we do all day long on our chats. Tom could definitely go on forever. That is no question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, y'all. So we'll do a part two at some point. But I just want to thank you for coming on, telling us about Archive, giving us your thoughts on sort of this journey. You are such an operator, and I think your thinking is so smart in so many of these areas. So I really respect you as a brain, but also I think our audience can learn a lot from you. 
We'll make sure all of Tom's socials and sites are in the show notes as well. He's definitely worth a follow and a connection if you guys have it. Tom, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Tom. Tom is such a wealth of knowledge from the ditty of DC and his time in Howard to launching a company they sold to Coinbase to launching a decentralized museum and archive. I feel like he has just so many stories. And I love the through line of emerging tech operator and potentially being a little bit too early, but ultimately it it ending up uh, right on time. Yeah. Tom's someone I also like will run things by often when I have a thesis about something happening in tech just to get like his take because he's like a very online person also like he's always thinking about these things. Extremely online. Yes. I also love that like if you look at the archive collection, I think it's archive.net, not only have they acquired art, but like they acquired the first five issues of the Homebrew Computer Club magazine, which was like the original OG computer magazine that Steve Wozniak and Steve Jobs were all like reading to get inspired about computing. Like the cultural out effect stuff is really interesting that they're involved with. I'm psyched about that. And because we have so many marketers who listen to this, I also feel like their branding is really on point. I've always really resonated with the brand, the look and feel. So everybody in the Gen Z community, go check out archive.net. Check out what Tom and his team are doing. It's really, really interesting. And we can't wait to be a part of it in the future. All right, y'all. Thanks for listening. We will see you next week. Take care, Gen Z. Mm-hmm.